We start with the quote of the day. This was said by Henry Rollins. In winter, I plot and plan. In spring, I move. <laughs> Happy spring equinox, everyone. Hello, my name is Addie Hurston. I am a painter, art instructor, author, and public speaker. The purpose of this podcast is to share stories about art and the creative process to inspire you and help you move forward. And yes, in turn, inspire myself and help me move forward. On the show, I interview artists from a wide variety of mediums so that we can learn from each other's processes and philosophy. Today's podcast features a chat with my buddy, Teresa Vasquez. Yes, Teresa Vasquez is back on the show because she and I went on a very special uh, art journey together to New York City, where we went to the Guggenheim to visit the Hilma Off Clint exhibit. And uh, in this podcast episode, we will be chatting about the Hilma Off Clint exhibit, why it was special, and our takeaways from seeing it. And before I forget, I want to say that you can find out more about Teresa's artwork at tvdreamaworld.com. That's T E A V I E D R E A M A world.com and I will have a link to that in the show notes. Announcements. Woohoo. Okay, so I have a huge announcement today. I do hold my breath a little bit as I make the announcement because uh, it's not 100% official yet and that is that I am buying a new house and along with the new house comes a new art studio. Ah! Um and so in a week and a half, I will hopefully, you know, it ain't over till I get the keys in my hand, be buying a new house, actually a new very old house. It was built in 1890. It's in downtown Indianapolis. And for those of you who follow um, me and my work and my teaching studio, I have currently um, a studio where I teach classes and um it's near the fairgrounds in Indianapolis, and it's a lovely space. Um, but it is two things that I don't like. One is that it is not handicap accessible, and I've had three different students who could not come to classes because it's not handicap accessible. And um, and I rent it, so you know I'm not in complete control over the space and what can be done with it and I'd like to be able to embellish it and make it more artistic well now we will have a permanent teaching studio that will be in a a spot behind my house uh so you know as I make this uh recording here it is March 20th 2019 and um the space does not currently have a functioning bathroom. <laughs> so we do need to put a new bathroom in and update the space and give it all once over. But I'm certainly hoping, hoping, crossing my fingers that we can be ready to move into the space, to have it all be official, to have the insurance all set and done, <laughs> and all of those fun, boring things. Um, by the beginning of August. So at that time, we'll start teaching my workshops, classes out of the new studio. And 
it's beautiful guys it's beautiful not only is there a lovely garden that um we can embellish and care for and we can step out into and then paint flowers um, but also we can cross the street and there's a bridge and we can look down the stream of Pogue's Run and paint that too. So it's going to be a lovely spot for plein air painting um, as well as the classes. So I, I cannot wait. I'm super excited. Cross your fingers for me that um, everything goes through um, and that the keys will be in my red hot hands. <laughs> um, in the meantime, uh, we do have upcoming classes at Studio Alchemy. One is that we have several abstract painting parties that will happen. Um, these are one-time events where I provide all of the paints and help guide people through doing a, an abstract painting. And one thing that makes my painting parties different than a lot of the other classes that are like this that are out there and so popular today is that I guide you to make your own piece. I'm not having you replicate what I do because I feel strongly that um, while replication is a good first step, it's not our ultimate goal. We want for you to find your own voice. So <clears throat> that's coming up this weekend and then another one the next month. There's flower painting. That class is one spot less than being full, and that's going to happen in May. I'm actually thinking about adding a second session so that we could add more people to it, because I know um, it'll fill up here very quickly. And by request, I've added a teen art camp where we're going to focus on illustration and learning how to draw, and that will be this June. So, um, Without further ado, now that I've made my big, huge announcement <laughs> and the small upcoming announcements, let's hear from Teresa Vasquez on our wonderful, delightful trip to New York City. All right. Well, welcome back, Teresa Vasquez, to the show. I'm so glad that you're here this evening chatting with me. Um, Teresa invited me to go with her on a very special trip to New York City um, a few weeks ago. And what we did is we flew from Indianapolis, where we live, and went to New York. And we visited the Guggenheim and other museums as well. But we were, our number one mission when we went there was to make sure we saw a special once-in-a-lifetime exhibit um, that is on the works of Hilma of Klint, currently on display at the Guggenheim through April something, I think. Um, and we we absolutely loved the show, and we wanted to come on to the podcast and chat about our experiences, why we loved Hilma of Klint's work, and what exactly it is that makes it special. So uh, let's dive into her biography and, and talk about her. Yeah? Okay, sure. Unless you have something to add? <laughs> well, I, I did want to say a little bit. So <clears throat> the main reason, like Addie said, that I was thinking it would, it would be a great ex exhibition to see is, for one thing, uh, it's only the second time that her work 
has been exhibited in the United States. It was exhibited uh, formerly in in L.A., um, but but also because, as you'll hear in her biography, her um, her life, her career as an artist, and her spiritual bent um really kind of consolidated a lot of a lot of things that that we also deal with in our in our art and um i was not familiar with her really at all until Addie and i prepared to teach the art of the dream and um she actually introduced hilma afklin to me and the first time i saw the first image of hers that that was shared um which turns out to be an altarpiece that was featured in uh, the exhibition at the guggenheim i was i was really captivated and and wanted to learn more and more uh so to talk a little bit about her life she was born in um Stockholm, Sweden, in 1862 on October 26th. And she was born to a a military father, and her mother was from Finland. Uh, And then she, you know, had a privileged upbringing. Um, She she was from a a, a well-to-do family. And uh, she, at the time, and in the in the environment that she was in, in in Sweden, um, there was a lot of uh, spiritualism that was going on at that time, and theosophy. And she became involved with uh, with both of those movements uh, still as a teenager. Um, Something that kind of precipitated her interest also in spiritualism was that her sister died uh, when she was uh, when she was eighteen years old, and so that desire to kind of connect with her her sister was something that that kind of um, fueled her interest and her work with being involved with seances and being involved with mediumship and so forth. She studied at the Royal Academy of Fine Arts, and um, she had very prominent teachers. And uh, she was one of few women that were that were studying fine art at the time at the academy. But she was such an accomplished student that um, the Royal Academy actually provided her with a studio in one of in one of the um, upper floors of the building where they had their their classes and among others that she would have kind of rubbed elbows with uh, was Edvard Munch of course the very famous um, uh, Swedish artist uh, from the scream that we that we are all familiar with um, so during this time she once uh, she had graduated and started her own studio, she became involved with, with a group of um, five female artists, including herself, um, and they called themselves the Five, or in Swedish, de Femme. And uh, so they would blend their spiritual practices with their art-making practices. And this was a way for them to create very... 
Um, very original works, but very spiritually engaged works as well. Um, and so the five of them did automatic writing, which we know is a kind of surrealist practice, but they also did automatic drawing. And so in the automatic drawing, they, you know, kind of evolved their, their own personal styles with, with channeled work. Um, so this went on from about 1896, and um, so they continued their work. She also worked as an illustrator, as a medical illustrator, and so she had, as, as medical illustrators have to have, um, a, a very, um, very clear sense of um, just uh, objective drawing and painting, you know, with great detail and with great nuance. And so she was known in, you know, to, to do, you know, medical drawings, botanical drawings, and so forth. So she's very accomplished in this area. However, kind of simultaneous to that, she's going to these seances with the five, and um, her spirit guides uh, make it known to her that they want for her to create paintings that will someday be in a temple in a in a temple of art if you will and it's very curious i'm going to just pause here for a minute that that temple ends up being the Guggenheim Museum in New York City, uh, you know, created by Frank Lloyd Wright. And that that building that was initially conceived of, that temple, was conceived of being a, um, a, a building with, with no straight lines, with curves, uh, that rises up to the top of, you know, with a, with, with a skylight, you know, window, you know, and so it's a little bit kind of, um, woo woo. Yes. Woo woo is a perfect word, you know, because she's envisioned this, this, this temple of art, if you will. And so eventually in 1906, she decides, yes, I'm going to take on this commission. And she uses the word commission that uh, one of her spirit guides um, that she calls Amaliel um, gave her to create these paintings for the temple. And so begins um, the masterwork of her life, the paintings for the temple, where she ended up creating 193 works uh, that were a part of her spiritual practice. These are works that are all um, paintings and drawings. Um, many of them are created, the paintings are created using tempera, Although um, I think some of them were also uh, oil on on paper, then uh, actually pasted onto canvas. And I think that when Addie and I entered the 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 main hall that has the the ten largest paintings for the temple, which is the the lifespan, we were kind of shocked to see that the the paintings were paper on canvas, you know, and that they were, um, that they were definitely, um, they definitely showed wear and tear of the years and, um, were not in an ideal, uh, 
they weren't created in an ideal way. Um, do you want to say something about that, Eddie? Sure. Um, it was stunning to walk into the room where the 10 largest pieces were, um, both because they're, they're so large that, you know, you stand in front of a painting that's that large, it's going to overwhelm, it's going to consume you in a way that a teeny tiny piece just can't, um, and the colors are so vivid, bright, you know, people described them as disco 70s colors. I mean, it's just, the colors seem so uh, intense and ahead of their time. And then I was really interested to know that the, the 10 largest were meant to sequentially tell the story of a lifetime, if you will, and that... Um, you know, it starts with infancy, one of them's infancy, and then toddlerhood and childhood and young adulthood, and they work their way up to old age. And yet, so it's it's showing the lifespan of a human being through the 10 pieces, but they're done so abstractly. I, I don't know that I would have guessed that just seeing them, but once that was explained, I certainly saw them in a whole new way, and I, I liked the piece that the best that was at the age that I am now. I don't know what that says, <laughs> um, but um, yeah. Any other thoughts on those? Well, well, as far as the the ten largest pieces, the um, the the paintings that that refer to the lifespan, a couple of things. One is that. Uh, we actually, when we entered the room, and it's 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 very curious that um, in this exhibition, there's a few paintings that you encounter before you encounter the the ten, but the ten are essentially in the first gallery room as you go up the ramps, um, you know, in the Guggenheim. <laughs> Yeah, it's like they were. I mean, if if there had been one more, and I mean, mind you, these are I believe six, um, uh, twelve foot twelve foot high by six foot wide, ten of them, and if there had been an eleventh, there would not have been room. <laughs> mm -hmm. But so we walked into the room. We happened to walk into the room in the opposite. Um, in the opposite sequence. So we started with old age, and then we went all the way to childhood. And it struck me how simplified the old age was, and how, like, florid, I mean, literally florid, full of flowers, and, um, and how the, you know, the infancy, you know, quickly evolves from from you know fully formed flowers to you know very abstract but still kind of um kind of organic shapes but those simplify more and more to geometric shapes to where at the end you're essentially dealing with very geometric um shapes and uh, there's there's a lot of motifs that that I guess the art historians also attribute to um, Swedish Swedish folk art, which I have no familiarity at all with. But 
my understanding is that there are a lot of kind of floral patterns and that there are a lot of um, kind of brighter colors and and this kind of thing. So it's interesting, you know, she's she's blending kind of that that tradition um, with with this, you know, the spiritualist, this very kind of modern way, if you will, of, of, of creating work. But all of this is, is just eclipsed by the fact that, you know, in the year 1906, nobody was working with abstraction. You know, um, Kandinsky was not yet working in abstraction, and neither was Malievich, and neither was um, neither was Mondrian. You know, so she this makes her a pioneer, largely an unsung um, heroine of of modern art. I'm gonna interject just and to back up because sometimes I'll get this question, and um, we art buffs um we know our lingo so <laughs> teresa and i know what abstraction means but just in case you don't really quite understand what that is to abstract something technically means to change it from one form to another um so if i have a vase of flowers on the table and i paint it and i change all the colors and i make them you know more geometric as Picasso did and so on and so forth that is an abstraction of the form whereas if I look at the flowers and I'm trying to realistically depict them as close to as possible to what is um, in front of me that's not an abstraction right Um, but uh, she's taking uh, spiritual concepts and then putting them into a uh, form, geometric form, and then laying them out on the canvas in a way that just had not been done before. And um, for myself, you know, when I learned the history of abstraction in college, we didn't talk about Hilma Ofklint. <laughs> and um, so when I found out about her a few years ago, it was really shocking just the, how how has she just been ignored for so long? Um, you know, you always hear Kandinsky is the father of abstraction. Well, maybe we should um, interject into the art history books. You know, Hilma should be the mother of abstraction. <laughs> and this is this is really the core of why this exhibit was so um, influential and meaningful to so many of us, um, particularly women artists. So any other thoughts on that, Teresa? Yeah, just I wanted to mention, so, I mean, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about, you know, what what about, um, for example, you know, all of the the works of Cezanne, or what about the works of Monet, and what about, you know... um, what about other work that we that we saw that that took place in um, at the end of the nineteenth century? Um, that's abstraction too, right? And okay, yes, it is. Now I'm going to add another another concept here. While those artists were working with um, abstracting um, actual representational. Um, 
themes, whether that be landscapes or individuals or, um, you know, rooms or different things, they were, they were changing the colors and they were changing the forms to simplify them and they were maybe distorting certain things. But this is actually the first instance in, in Western art anyway, um, where you see non-representational work, things that do not exist in um, objective reality, let's say. So because she was channeling this work, she was channeling concepts, spiritual concepts, like Eddie was saying, and so those don't necessarily have representation in the objective so-called real world. So that's why, you know, the work was, was so kind of monumental and, and so groundbreaking um, because it was non-objective. So going back to her uh, kind of chronology, so, so she's doing this work, and over these nine years she comes to create um, almost 200 different works of different sizes, and, um, and, and these monumental pieces she did actually early on in that, in that chronology. She also did them within a period of six weeks. <laughs> which just blows me away. And in fact, some of the materials that she used um, seem kind of uh, primitive, kind of in the same way that you think of Jack Kerouac's um, methods of writing on the road, like that he would queue up this roll of paper and that he would get, you know, um, amphetamines or whatever and just type for, you know, however many hours straight, you know. So she was trying to capture these messages from her spirit guides and she was basically working as quickly as she could and it's amazing to me to think that the 10 largest uh, canvases came about in six weeks. I just, I can't imagine. I've been working on one piece for the past six months, <laughs> you know, so it just is kind of blinding speed. So she, at a certain point of time, met up with, um, with Rudolf Steiner, and Rudolf Steiner um, is kind of a, um, an intellectual and also very spiritually um, inclined individual who created, who was part of the Theosophical Society, and that's kind of how he got associated with, with Hilma, but then um, kind of broke off to create what's called the Anthroposophical Society, which still has manifestations today. Um, probably the one that is most well-known is the Waldorf School. So Waldorf technique as far as education is one of his uh, aspects of, of work. And so in their interaction, she shared with him kind of her way of working through um, being kind of a conduit to the work, you know, that, that she was essentially channeling. And he was very against this way of working. He felt that, that then there was no kind of... Um, control in a way that there was no way that the that that it was really kind of her art and he he really dissuaded her and and it, it bears mentioning that also the other four of the five basically cautioned her on not 
you know, taking up this commission, that this would be something that would harm her uh, personally to kind of just open herself up as a conduit to, um, to spirit. So she kind of chewed on this for a number of years. And eventually in 1915, um, with the end of the paintings for the temple, she uh, discontinued her, her work um, in, in, in creating channeled paintings. And so she continued to work. She started to use kind of a wet-on-wet wet technique with watercolors, um, which frankly for me kind of, and I, I love to work in that wet-on-wet wet technique. That's one of my favorites, uh, where you have the wet watercolor paper and then you add uh, liquid media, whether it be watercolors or inks or, or other very fluid media. But there's some, there was something missing at that point, you know, and you have to ask yourself, well, what what is that spiritual component that was missing? And um, to me, it was, it was very clear. It's like um, that there were just wasn't the inspiration, there wasn't the energy, there wasn't the delight uh, behind the work anymore, which, which I think is rather sad. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have anything to say about that, Eddie? Yeah, just real quick. I mean, her work literally got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller which just was very sad to me and I get it as an artist because we'll create a big piece you know and then you know if you don't have someone to sell it to or give it to or you know you you run out of wall space in your own house this certainly has happened to me um but you know so and I know of artists who choose to only work small because then it's easy to store them, it's easier to sell them, and they're worth less. Um, and one of the key proponents of that idea is um, the author of Daily Painting, Carol Marine. And so, so a lot of people try to work small just because this really is... A problem we have but I you know I want to work bigger I get so excited when I have a really huge canvas to work with um, it's just so energizing and because it's powerful to stand in front of such a big piece as I was saying before and one of the things that really inspired me from seeing her work that I'm gonna do is to work on rolls of canvas and then you can store them a little more easily um so i'm gonna give that a little try i know sometimes if you roll up a canvas the painting can crack so it you know you got to be careful with your medium and what's really going to work but yeah that saddened me that it got smaller and smaller yeah and and while this is happening you know it's it's significant to to mention that you know there were other changes going on you know after after not too long um after she was done with the paintings for the temple her mother within 5 years had passed away she spent she pretty much stopped um so that she could care for her mother her mother was blind at that time and you know and needed her attention but one of the things that that kind of happened in her life as well which is very significant is that uh, she made a decision because her work 
when she showed it, she did have one exhibition in 1928 where, um, where it, where it is it is known that she um, included works from paintings for the temple, but just a couple of works. Um, and they were not necessarily well received. They were not, they did not get the kind of response that she had hoped for. You know, mind you, she's, she has all these paintings, you know, like we were talking about that have collected, you know, and, and she decided in 1932... Um, a, a little more than a decade before her passing, that that her work should not be shown until 20 years after her death. And as an artist, you know, I think about this choice, and it is, um, it's terrifying to me to think of taking my whole life's work, you know, and deciding, well, this shall not be shown, you know, no exhibitions, no, you know, no nothing for 20 years after I'm dead. It's like almost the like reverse of um, kind of copyright, like it doesn't go into the public domain until <laughs> 70 years past your, your own death. But this is, you know, this is a totally different dynamic. She's the one who's saying, well, the world is not ready for these paintings. And so therefore comes the um, the title of, of the show, which is Paintings for the Future. And, you know, again, thinking about painting for the future, there's so many people. I mean, you think of Van Gogh. I mean, he's, his, his is the quintessential story of the, the painter who ends up painting for the future, because in his present day, he was not appreciated. He was, he was um, in, a, in a state of illness where he wasn't able to, to be the best advocate for his own work. You know, and in this case, being a woman, being in Sweden, um, being someone who painted based on, on you know, trying to bring spiritual concepts into um, the the so-called real world, ends up being kind of more than <laughs> more than the public, I suppose, could bear. And so she dies in 1944. Her work is rediscovered, or re, you know, recovered, re, uh, you know, opened up in 1964. And even then, it seems like the world is not ready for her work. Um, and so, this is something that Addie and I talked about, you know, do we paint for the future? Do we paint for the present? you know, who and when and what time do we paint for? I mean, I remember um, so many discussions in art school where people were talking about, you know, being in the zeitgeist, you know, being in, in the now and dealing with what's going on for us in popular culture, in the media, in our society and politics, etc. Like, you know, that we paint, that, 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 that people make art that's based very much in the now. But this is different. 
And so, I mean, Addie, do you, how, how do you, for what period of time do you paint? You know, do you paint for, for now, for the future, a little bit of both? I'm going to give you a hard both. <laughs> and, I, and partially because I see them as really exact opposite. You have painting for process. Painting for right now, I'm enjoying it, I'm in the moment. Um, and then opposite end, I have painting so that I am conveying a message to somebody. I want to tell a story. I want to explain to someone other than myself what it's like to be me, how I see the world. And in fact, this week I'm starting two classes and they really feel like they're the exact opposite of each other. One is my intuitive painting class, which is very popular. It's creating art where you do not plan at all you just dive in and do it and see what happens and then learn about yourself in the process and then the other is painting with a message where you are sitting down and deciding what story do I want to tell what message do I want to convey um, you know a lot of political art goes in this category and we look at Helma's work she was I. Uh, I use her as an example of a formative intuitive painter um, in the intuitive painting class. She's just sitting down and just doing it and um, believed that she was channeling it from uh, spirits. So she's not planning. And yet her writings and things reflect that it's meant for a future audience to look at and reinterpret and understand better they will see it for what it really truly is or even just value it in a way that her current um her contemporaries couldn't do mm-hmm. right and so to me it depends on the moment and it depends on what i want um then do i need therapy okay i sit down and i'll just <laughs> i'll just dive in and but other times i've got a burning message and i really want to um make it as clear as possible and and her message it's it's interesting because you you look at it you try to interpret the the shapes and you know there were a lot of dualities there were a lot of um you know circular shapes that were splitting apart or coming together how do we now interpret this and uh and really understand it It, there's a lot there so i I certainly think you could take a lifetime and and study her work so maybe one maybe one thing now that we've kind of talked about her life that we could kind of transition to is to talk about um, some of her works so there's a couple of paintings that we wanted to to talk about and kind of explain to you um, the the best way to kind of see the images that we're talking about would be you know to to do a google image search so you know we recommend that you look for um the 10 largest if you just type in hilma af Klint, uh the the 10 largest you might even type in um, paintings for the temple to see some of these images so we're going to talk about a couple of our favorites all right 
for me, my absolute favorite, um, and let me just interject that uh, maybe I shouldn't have a favorite. I don't know. I, I do play a game with myself when I go into an art museum or an art show. I'll say, okay, which one's my favorite and why? And it's just this little secret game that I do. Um, and it's fun. But one just really stands out to me. And it is the swan. Now the swan, there's a series and the one that's my favorite is the very beginning in the series. And in it, you see two swans that are kissing. <laughs> Their beaks are touching. And one swan is white and one swan is black. The space around the white swan is black and the space around the black swan is white. So it has a very yin-yang look to it. Um, and... In the description that the folks at the Guggenheim wrote, they said this about the swan. With the black and white swans, Offclint delves into dualities, light and dark, male and female, life and death, forces whose opposition she believed were central to existence. In alchemy, the swan symbolizes the union of opposites necessary for the creation of the philosopher's stone. In Offclint's paintings, after the forces embodied by the swans come into conflict, they begin to combine and ascend into higher realms until they are ultimately unified. So here you have first an image of the dualities. You have the opposites that are looking at each other. And then in the next image, there's four swans that are kissing a heart in the middle. And, and one of the swans is split into two. And so they are changing and morphing from opposites. And, and it keeps going. And I'm going to let Teresa take over because she liked the the ending pieces in the swan series your thoughts <laughs> yeah so this this swan series is probably i would say um you know outside of the 10 largest one of the most crucial it's there the evolution kind of from objective you know looking at these swans they look very you know swan-like they they're they're representational of swans to very kind of geometric patterns and so you go from quadrants that are of different colors in a square canvas um, you go from circles at conical shapes to triangles to very pale colors squaring the circle kind of later on thinking about the image that the image is um is essentially a a, a tree of life um it, the 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 um the tree of life used in in the kabbalah it's also the tree of life that um that is shown in in egyptian um in in egyptian mysteries and so the impact is on a very visceral level and these are you know concepts that i've studied but at the same time the way that they show up 
just kind of when you encounter them personally, when you have that canvas in front of you, that very large canvas in front of you, um, is, is, is really uncanny. Um, so all I can really say about it is that it, it, it seems to hit on a, on, on a very physical level, which is something I wasn't expecting. Um, but I suppose it makes sense because, um, I think a lot of spiritual concepts don't really make sense sometimes until you're able to internalize them and until you're able to kind of feel them in your own in your own body and it makes me think about the act of creating these canvases and how how it must have been to kind of channel this through her own body you know um and it makes me also reflect on um you know, work that I do when I'm in, when I'm in that flow, you know, where it seems like there's, like there's no time, like I'm out of time, like there, and the effort is effortless, and, um, and all of these things that, that this clearly comes out in the work. Okay, to wrap up our chat about Hilma of Clint, I wanted to just talk for one more minute about how significant this is. And, I, and Teresa talks about automatic drawing of the surrealist movement. You know, that didn't happen for another decade or two until after Hilma was doing her automatic drawing herself. And, and it's, it's a really fun, um, fun method. You just sit down and you, you're either writing out words or you're drawing and you don't plan, just see what happens. And during the surrealist era, they were really trying to get at their unconscious, at the unconscious side of their brain to bring forth that which you're not aware of, but that's simmering underneath the surface. And I wonder how much of the roots of that movement may have derived from the spiritualist concepts from the few decades before Kandinsky and abstraction. I I think, and I love Kandinsky, but we really need to bring to light how important her work was in that it, it was formative. It was, you know, we, we spend so much time with art, um, you know, were they the first to do it? And, and, you know, and that, I don't know that just because it was the first means it's the most important, but there are reasons why she didn't get put in the history books because she's a woman and, um, and this, darn it, it's not fair. And when we were there at the Guggenheim, um, we did the whole exhibit, walked through processed and everything and then we went into the uh, permanent exhibit of the Guggenheim and I went through it and they had some great stuff um, some of my personal favorites but I realized that there was not one woman that was represented in the the permanent exhibit and I had to go through I said to myself did I see that right and I went back through um, and sure enough there wasn't even one and I would challenge them that really, surely in their basement somewhere, you know, museums like the Guggenheim have tons of work that's been donated to them that um, is not on show. And 
it was nice to have Hilma's exhibit there, but more women need to be in the permanent collection as well. Um, and that's, uh, I guess I'll stand off my soapbox, but any other thoughts, <laughs> Teresa? Well, just, just two, two additional things. So one is that, you know, if, if we go back to this idea of painting for the future and this choice that Hilma Afklint made to kind of um, hold back her work until, uh, until a future audience might be ready for it, um, it strikes me that nowadays, you know, with the internet, with with knowledge being so much closer to our fingertips, like we're not having to pour over kind of arcane libraries to get a lot of the knowledge that she was um, was talking about, was, was trying to portray in her work um, through, uh, you know, these, these, these spiritual movements. The audience may well be ready for you know, what, what she was portraying, what she was showing. Um, and just in, in, in to totally formal aspects, ready to kind of face the work that she, that she did. But, but the knowledge aspect and the, the, the availability of the knowledge to the average person nowadays with uh, the internet, you know, make, makes the timing now of such an exhibit very very um appropriate but the other aspect is that for us as artists it is it's of utmost importance that we kind of feed our artistic souls with with viewing um, the very best art and and being able to go to shows and see what's out there of course, in our in in our local environment, but also to make those art pilgrimages to New York or to L.A. or to Chicago or to London or Paris or wherever we have access to go. That that this is something really valuable that can make an impact in our lives for years and and to go with other artists and to have those conversations about the work and to let the work affect you and to um, bring in you know your own unique voice into the conversations that that these uh, that these shows and these artworks bring up so make sure to do an art pilgrimage even if it's just you know to your local museum wherever you live so eloquently said, as usual, Teresa, thank you so much for coming on the show. <laughs> thank you, Addie. It's a pleasure. And thanks again to Teresa Vasquez for not only coming on the show, but also uh, encouraging me to go on the art pilgrimage to New York. It was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and I'm so thankful that Teresa asked me to go with her. And with that, we will end our show for today. May each of you find your artistic voice.